I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to the Gospel of John, if you haven't already. John chapter 1. Here at Flatland Bible Church, we hold to a high view of Scripture, also known as the doctrine of sola scriptura. We believe that the Word is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient self-revelation by which we come to know God, how we can be saved, and how to live in light of salvation. For this reason, it is our practice to, to preach through books of the Bible. As you've seen the past several weeks, sometimes there is room for topical studies that focus on biblical truth. But our meat and potatoes, if you will, is working through books of the Bible. This involves simply preaching what the text says in the order that it is written. Said another way, it's working verse by verse through from front to back of a particular book of the Bible. So today, we're going to begin doing this with a new book study in the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, if you haven't read through it much or if it's been a while, it is a beautiful, rich, theological, and simple book. Many scholars point out that it's both simple enough for beginners to be richly edified by it and also deep enough that the more advanced students of Scripture can devote decades of study to and certainly still not plumb the depths of it. That could be said of Scripture in general, of course, but it is certainly unique in John. As you read through John, you can Definitely see how this is true. We're going to come across very simple truth, such as, for God so loved the world, you could finish it, couldn't you, that He gave His only begotten Son. But then we also come across deep and profound truth, such as, before Abraham was, I am. As John writes, you'll notice a writing style that is altogether unique to this beloved disciple. We're going to see themes and familiar words that he's going to use all throughout this book. Words like word, truth, light, witness, and life over and over and over again. And that's true of all of John's writings, not just his gospel, but his epistles as well, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Recall Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. They're called the synoptics because they share, by and large, the same content. They're providing a, a synopsis, if you will, of the life and ministry of Jesus. And they're much more historical in nature, some would even say biographical. But John records many things that we actually don't find in the synoptics. And many things that we find in the synoptics, we don't find in John. He records the sign of turning water into wine, for example. He records many discourses. And of course, 
Who can forget John 17, the high priestly prayer, this intimate glimpse into the Son talking to His Father. John doesn't give us a record of Jesus' birth. He doesn't record the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, or the institution of the Lord's Supper. He isn't even focused on recording that many miracles or as many of Jesus' miracles as we find in the synoptics. And this isn't accidental. It's very much intentional. It's said that John probably wrote this really late in his life, somewhere around 80, 90 AD, long after the Lord has been resurrected and ascended, probably even after many of the other apostles have already passed away. John is writing his gospel John picks the signs that he picks for a very specific, spirit-inspired purpose. And we don't have to guess at what his purpose is. John tells us his purpose statement in chapter 20. He tells us in verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. He recorded the signs that He did, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. So you will see as we read from, from beginning to end, line after line, page after page, John's purpose is jumping off the page. He wants you to see that the signs that he's referring to should be a sign pointing you to the reality that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. John only records seven of Jesus' signs, but those are uniquely selected, spirit-inspired selection of these signs to draw out the reality of who John Jesus is. While all of the four Gospels are obviously focused on Jesus, his presentation of Jesus is distinctly majestic and glorious. One theologian said that in John we find, quote, an exalted view of the person of Christ. Others have said that John is a very spiritual book, focusing not so much on Jesus' human relationships or, or even details, but on his heavenly relationship with his Father. John wants us to see that Jesus is God, that he is the Son of God. Why? So that we might believe and have eternal life. The apostle is very evangelistic in that sense, and for that purpose, we have creatively come up with the series title, That You May Believe. And using creative, a bit sarcastically there, because it, John tells us that's the purpose of his book. Now, perhaps some of you might think, but we already believe. Why preach through a heavily evangelistic book focused on the reader believing? Beloved, we never, ever, ever, ever outgrow the gospel. 
We never outgrow our need for the gospel. We never outgrow our need to hear the gospel, to study the gospel, to be reminded of the glorious truth of the gospel. Further, there is surely no higher goal in the study of Scripture than coming to know and love our Lord more. As you're reading through John, seeing the exalted view that he has of Christ, you can't help but be amazed at the glory of Christ. John certainly was. As I said a bit ago, it's believed that John wrote this gospel after all three of the synoptics had been written later on in his life. You can imagine people coming to John. John, tell us about Jesus. What was Jesus like? Tell us about him. Tell us about his miracles. He says in his first epistle that they had looked upon Christ. That they touched him. That he was real. He was, he was actually here. They heard him speak. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Even after Christ had descended to the Father, John still remembers quite well that they beheld His glory. That He was full of grace and truth. You want me to tell you what Jesus was like? I will. Gather around. He was full of grace and truth. We saw His glory. My prayer is that as we begin this series, that when we finish John, that we would say the same thing. That we would be able to see His glory in page after page of this Gospel. That we would not just see Him as a, a physical flesh and bone individual as John did, but that with the eyes of our spirit being illumined by the Spirit of God, that we may see the glory of Christ in the pages before us. With that in mind, would you take your Bible and stand with us as we read John 1, 1 through 5. This is the word of the living and true God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, I want to simply ask that You give us eyes to see and ears to hear. As a sinful man, I am woefully incapable of drawing out the glory of Christ off of a white page with black letters on it. We need your Spirit to empower both the proclamation and the reception of your Word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great and wonderful truth about Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. In the beginning was the Word. The synoptics all have a particular starting point that they want to take the reader to. 
Matthew wants to take us back to the beginning of Jesus' family tree, showing us that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Mark says that he wants to take us back to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he starts with the testimony of John the Baptist. Luke wants to take us back to the births of both Jesus and John the Baptist being foretold. John, however, takes us even further back, doesn't he? Back before even creation itself. He takes us back to the very beginning. What does this language that he's using remind you of? In the beginning. What other book of the Bible begins in the beginning? I hope that you know your Bible well enough to know Genesis 1.1, the very opening of Scripture, begins in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. John takes us back to the very beginning of time itself. In a book written to show that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, John takes us back by the hand and directs our attention to Genesis 1. Why? Our first heading today is that God, John wants us to see that Jesus is eternal. The Word is eternal. Being a Jew, he was undoubtedly more than familiar with Genesis 1.1. So he's purposefully taking us back to the foundation of the world. John wants us to see the Word is eternal. That means without starting point. Why is this significant? Well, in part because of the focus of John's Gospel, as we have said a number of times already. John is focused on portraying that Christ is the Son of God. There's not one focus higher than the other in the Gospels. All of them are important. We have to draw out the focus of each Gospel so that we can have a firm understanding of who Jesus is. Christ is King, as Matthew shows us. Mark shows us that He's suffering servant. Luke shows Him as fully man. And John shows us that He's fully God. All four of the Gospels give us this all-important view of the person and work of Jesus. Friends, without either of those, we lose the Jesus of Scripture. So since John wants to show us that Jesus is God, he goes back to the place where only God was. In the beginning, our English translations have the verb was. In the beginning, was. This might at first sound like it's referring to the past tense. In the beginning was the Word. But the verb indicates existence. So we could paraphrase it to say, in the beginning, the Word was. Or in the beginning, the Word already was. He already was. He did not come into being, but He already was at the beginning. He did not come after the beginning. He never came into existence. He always was. Jesus existed in eternity past, as we often refer to it. He did not start at the beginning. He didn't have a a beginning point, a birth date, if you will. He already was in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. Now, why does John use this term, Word? 
Why doesn't he just say Jesus? In the beginning was Jesus. Wouldn't that be a lot easier to follow along with? In the beginning was the Word. Does he mean our Bible? Surely not, because Crossway published this. I know Crossway is not eternal. What is he saying? In the beginning was the Word. Many scholars have a variety of answers in this, to this question, and personally, I believe that that is exactly why the Spirit through John wrote it this way, is that there are multiple layers of meaning. It doesn't mean a bunch of different things. It has layers, depth of meaning. It's intentionally and masterfully written in such a way that it encompasses Great depth of meaning. The word in the original is logos. No, not the polo logo on your shirt. Logos. In the cultural setting of the time, logos was thought of by the Stoics as this impersonal force by which all things came into being. You've heard people say, well, the universe wants this or that, or the universe doesn't want this or that, we're, we're, you hear that and people are talking about this impersonal force that, that sort of rules and governs all things. This is what the Stoics would have referred to as the Logos. It is this force that governs and has created all things. So if one of them were to read this passage, they would be quite familiar with the concept of Logos. But John is going to take the word in an entirely different direction than what they would expect as John displays that the word, the logos, has a relational nature. He even says that the word is a he in verse 2, which the Stoics would have been completely baffled by. The Jews who would have been reading this gospel would certainly have a framework for word now, wouldn't they? They would know Psalm 33, 6, which says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. They would know of the prophets who would write that the word of the Lord came to me. The Jews reading this then would know that word is the mechanism by which God creates, redeems, and reveals the writer of Hebrews can help shine some light on what's going on here. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The word of the Lord came to me. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In in the earlier days, long ago, God spoke, the word of the Lord came to me by the prophets. But now, in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, the, the Logos, the Word. We can safely say that John is using this word, Logos, to say that Jesus is the fullest expression of all that God wishes to reveal to humanity. Jesus is the fullest expression of all that God wishes to reveal to humanity. This is why John records Jesus as saying in chapter 14, I am the truth. 
Not I am truthful, not I speak true things. I am the truth. Not just that Jesus speaks it. He also says a few verses later in chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the fullest expression, not just in the things that he said while he walked the earth, but also in the things that he did in his person and work, who he was. He is truth. Isn't that what John says in verse 14? He was full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 will go on to say that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the perfect manifestation of and representation of the Father. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. He says that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who? Can you guess? Jesus Christ. That we can see the light of knowledge. We see We can see knowledge. How? Jesus is the Logos. He is the manifestation of and representation of God. Carson points out in his commentary that with John packing so much meaning into these opening words, that what he's endeavoring to show us is that this word, this Logos, must either be with God or he must be God. And we would see that John's answer would be, yes, both. Both of them, Mr. Carson. The second thing that John shows us is that the Word is God. Get back in verse 1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Isn't this absolutely Staggering. We're just a few words into the Gospel of John, and he's already giving us a strong dose of his high Christology. Christology is just a a fancy-sounding term that simply refers to the study of the person of Jesus Christ. Christ. Christology. Ology. Study of Christ. Christology is focused on what Scripture teaches about Christ. You cannot faithfully study in systematic theology. You cannot study Christology without these introductory words of the beloved disciple. Why? Because he is teaching us essential truth regarding the eternality of Christ and now and the, so to speak, Godness of Christ. John says that the Word was both with God and the Word was God. Let's look at those individually. The Word was with God. As we said a bit ago, the verb was here is not in the past tense. It's indicating existence. So in the beginning, the Word already was existing with God. That would be a safe way to paraphrase it. In the beginning, the Word was already existing with God. This teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity. We sang it a bit ago. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Do you know what that means? Not the school. Not the baseball team. Trinity. 
on our website, you can find a section entitled, What We Teach. I don't know if you've ever read through that before, but in case you haven't, the very first line in that document is concerning the Trinity. And here is what it says, quote, We teach that there is but one living and true God, one God, an infinite, all-knowing Spirit, perfect in all His attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience, end quote. Notice that John doesn't just say that the Word was with the Father, but that He was with God. This points us to the reality of the Godhead being eternally existing. That's why we have worded it that way in the What We Teach document. It's not just the Father, not just the Son, it's the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit eternally existing. Neither the Father, nor the Son, nor the Spirit ever came into existence. If you ever hear someone saying something remotely near that, run, 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 far away, is a great heresy. The Godhead exists eternally in perfect harmony. The Word was with God. It indicates relation. But John doesn't just stop there, does he? Not only was the Word with God, but the Word was God. Back to what, our, what we teach document, specifically of Christ, it says, quote, we teach that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, possesses all the divine excellences, and in these He is co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal with the Father. End quote. What on earth does that mean? I know that everybody talks like that in their everyday. Jesus, it means this, very simply, that Jesus Christ is not a separate God. You, you know in Greek mythology there is the God of this, there is the God of that, and there is the God of this. That is not how it works in the Trinity. Jesus is not a God of salvation and God is the God of, uh, of ju judgment or something to that nature. That He's not a separate God. There is no division in the Trinity. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is eternally existing in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit. He's not any less God. He is God. This means, again, that Jesus was not created as the Jehovah's Witnesses falsely teach. In fact, in the New World Translation, which is their translation of the Bible, do you know how this verse reads? You can go to jw.org and you can find this for yourself. It reads, In the beginning was the Word, good so far. And the Word was with God, great. And the Word was a God. That should make you jump out of your seat. And the Word was a God. Church, if Jesus was created, if Jesus is not God, we do not have the Christian faith. Further, if you do not believe that Jesus is God, you cannot have saving faith. As righteous as you may think yourself. Many people think Jehovah's Witnesses are our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Let me say to you very clearly, they are not. 
They are the mission field. This doesn't mean we think we're better than Jehovah's Witnesses. It means that we need to share the gospel with them. To deny the deity of Jesus Christ is to believe in a false Christ who cannot save. And how can I say that? That's really arrogant. No, it's not. It's an interpretation of what John is writing. It's in John's purpose statement in chapter 20. That he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. So what does that mean? That without believing this, we don't have life in his name. It matters not how many wonderful things we might believe about and attribute to Jesus. If we do not believe that he is God, everything that we say, all of our belief is meaningless. Christians are those who make the good confession that Thomas made to Jesus in chapter 20. My Lord and my God. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? Not a God. Not just mighty and powerful. Not just a really fantastic prophet. But God. Many today will say plenty of nice things of Jesus and love the Jesus who is all benevolent, but stop short of calling Him God because the implications are just too high. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a God, but not God. The Mormons believe, quote, from their website, God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are separate beings, end quote. Not only that, but Mormons believe that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. They believe that both Lucifer and Jesus are offspring of God the Father. And that Lucifer later chose to become Satan. Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet. On and on and on, obviously, we could go. But let it be said simply. That there is no salvation offered in those religions or any other religion aside from Christianity. Because at the core of our confession is that Jesus Christ is God. The next thing that John wants us to see is that the word created. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only was Jesus not created, but through Jesus, everything else was created. He is the divine agent through which God created all things. John states this in both the positive and the negative. In the, ne in the positive, he says, all things were created through Him. And in the negative, he says, without Him was not anything made that was made. Why is he doing that? It's a rhetorical device to emphasize emphasize Jesus is the creator. That He created all things. All things were created through Him. Exclamation point, bold caps, underlined. You know, they didn't have Microsoft Word during this time. I don't know if you knew that. I know that we think that certain computers are, are ancient, but they're not that ancient. Instead, in order to emphasize, they would put things at the beginning of sentences or reiterate them or say them in creative ways to make an emphasis. And that's what he's doing. He's emphasizing the fact that 
everything. He says all things. Just as a rhetorical question, what do you think would be included in all things? Does it maybe mean some things? Do you think it means most things? How about 90% of things? No, I think John means to say all things, every single thing was created through Jesus. The act of creation is something that only God can do. Today we have this term, we have terms, we, we call people creatives, noun, not adjective. We call them a creative or a content creator. A creative is someone who is creative for their profession. They are professionally creative. Whether it be someone who is creative in putting colors together, styles, or whatever else, we think of a creative as someone who creates beautiful works of art. And a content creator is a title often attributed to people on YouTube. They make YouTube videos with varying degrees of focus and areas of interest. And they're called a content creator. They are creating content about inventors. Thomas Edison had patents for over 1,000 inventions. Show off. He was constantly cooking up some new invention no one had ever seen before. Some say that Edison even invented a new way of inventing. Friends, that's creative. He invented the light bulb. The phonograph, the alkaline storage battery, he was a brilliant man. What about Leonardo da Vinci? He's often considered one of the most talented painters of all time, having painted very, very familiar works of art, the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. Yet as creative as the human mind has been throughout history, it pales in comparison to the creative ability of God. Humans we do not truly create anything. A content creator doesn't create anything. A, a, a musician, an artist, we don't create anything. All a creative painter, painter can do is reproduce an image that he or she has seen using a canvas that was already made and colors that already exist in nature. Edison's light bulb used elements that were already in existence. My point is, that as human beings, even the most creative among us have inspiration that derives from outside of them. Perhaps it's a beautiful skyline, a wonderful meal, a close relationship, or for the inventor, it's a need that must be met. Either way, we have to use things that are already in existence. It's not so with God. It is said that He created ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. We can't even fathom this. Nothing was there. We, we don't even have a frame of reference for nothing. Because everywhere we go, there's something. Even if you're in an empty room, you're there. Space is there. Time is there. Light is there. Floor is there. Ground. Sky. But there was nothing there. God created out of nothing. What does that mean? When He created the heavens and the earth, 
It was not a design that he was trying to replicate, that he was inspired by. He wasn't inspired by other colors that he had seen. But instead, the heavens and the earth, the plan for redemption, the colors that we see, the beauty in this world, the wonder of the Grand Canyon, it all came from the mind of God. Think of the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. Those colors, they come from the mind of God. Think of the most beautiful nature you've ever seen. Gabby and I got to go to the Rocky Mountains last year. Absolutely breathtaking. And it comes from the mind of God. When you see a beautiful skyline, you shouldn't just say, wow, that's pretty. You should say, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things were created through Him. That means this. That means the sun that sits in the sky that would burn us up if we were a few degrees closer to it. It means the stars that hang overhead, the moon. Beauty itself is from God. Nothing would be beautiful, pleasing, or delightful without God. In creating all things through the world, through the Word, He created them to be beautiful. The sunset is beautiful. You have eyes to see. You have a frame of reference to understand beauty because of God. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Tonight, go outside and look up at the sky and bring to mind John 1, 2. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him. One preacher said it this way in speaking about the universe. Quote, It is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about Himself. Namely, that this God is glorious and beautiful and lovely. And it is because Jesus is God and because all things were made through Him that we see Jesus commanding the wind and the waves, walking on water, multiplying bread and fish, and healing physical ailments. Why? Because Jesus is God. This is why John will call these miracles signs. They are signs pointing to something. Not that this Jesus here is just a great guy or a powerful healer, but it's pointing and saying, Hello! Jesus is God! Jesus is Creator. John's point over and over throughout this gospel is don't get stuck wondering at the sign. Worship the Son. The Word gives life. Verses 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Life and light are major themes throughout John's gospel. He uses both words with great frequency. And in the immediate context, we can see that John is still talking about creation. So life 
is being used in a very general way in saying that He is the one who gives life in general. Physical life, plant life, animal life, human life. In Christ was life. But there is obviously an even greater usage of this term referring to eternal life. Jesus will say in His high priestly prayer that this is eternal life. That they know You the Father. And John was telling us here that in the beginning, Jesus was there with the Father, knowing the Father. He has eternal life. Not just that He lives eternally, but He possesses eternal life that He may give eternal life. We learned in chapter 3 that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. In chapter 4, it's Christ who gives the water that will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life. And the words that He speaks are spirit and life. Most explicitly, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the life. So in Christ was life. You cannot find life outside of Christ. It doesn't exist. For it is in Him. In Him was life. And since we know that Christ upholds all things by the word of His power, people only live as long as He says they will live. And people only live eternally if it is granted to them to live eternally. Back to his high priestly prayer. He says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He explains again that having eternal life is knowing the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, and if eternal life is found in knowing the Father, then no one has life except through Jesus. It means that as happy as you may see people, especially on social media, you can see people dead in their sin having a great time. And what will they say? I felt so alive. Surely one of the saddest things someone dead in their sin can say I went skydiving, and it made me feel so alive. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. You are the walking dead. You are a shell of life that lives 70, 80, 90, 100 years, 120. Good job. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't have eternal life. And how do we have eternal life? We believe in the Son, for in Him was life. He says, the life was the light of men. And if you have the NASB, the New King James, or an older iteration of the NIV, your Bible translates the word for overcome as comprehend. In other words, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. John seems to be using a bit of wordplay, purposeful ambiguity. The word in the original can mean both to overcome and to lay hold of physically. 
but it can also mean to lay hold of mentally. We use the word grasp. You can grasp something with your hand, or you can grasp something with your brain. So which is it? Which one does John mean? Does John mean that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it or comprehended it? Or that the darkness has not overcome it? I think if John were here once again, he would say yes. Exactly. Both. I'd argue that the purposeful ambiguity here is intended to set up the rest of the gospel in both indicating that Christ is the light of the world, as it says in 8.12, and the darkness or the powers of darkness could not defeat Jesus, as indicated by his resurrection from the dead. In that way, the word is taking them, he's, what he's meaning in that sense is that the darkness has not overcome or overpowered the Word, the light. But we also see this theme running throughout the book of John that shows that people in darkness are those who are spiritually dead, while light is the illumination of God, wherein we receive the knowledge of God. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light of life is the opposite of walking in darkness. It's following Jesus. It's having and knowing and loving and desiring Jesus. When we receive eternal life, we also receive the revelation of God. Back to 2 Corinthians 4. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If any man is to receive the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, he will only find that light in believing in Jesus Christ. For in Him is life that is the light of men. Those who live in darkness have seen a great light, the prophet said. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Later on, he will say that Jesus came to his own and his own did not accept him. They didn't receive him. The light came to the darkness and the darkness didn't understand. In movies, we often portray good and evil as these equal opposite forces. The powers of good are nearly overpowered by the powers of darkness. But by the hairs on their chinny-chin-chin, the good guys pull out the narrow victory just in time for you to go catch dinner. It's not so with our Lord now, is it? The powers of darkness are mightier than you and I, to be sure, but they are no match for the King of Kings, through whom all things were created. John states clearly, the light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness of the human heart as the Spirit grants us the revelation of God. The light of the gospel shines in a world lost in sin. The darkness, try as it might, and we see it trying so hard today, cannot and will not overcome the light, for it is impossible for it to do so. You walk into a room, no matter how dark, you turn on the light switch, and what happens? Does the dark win? 
the light turns on and it shines brightly in the dark room. The darkness cannot overcome the light. The light overcomes the dark, but neither can the darkness comprehend the light because people walking in darkness love it so. Ultimately, Christ is himself the light. Verse 7 shows us that John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him for the true light was coming into the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He reveals the Father and grants eternal life. So the question is, has that light shone in your heart? Have you come to see and to know that he has the words of life? Have you become a new creation through the one through whom all things are created? If not, Christ grants that to you. When we turn from our sin and believe in his name, we shall be saved. Let's stand. As we close today, there are no practical action steps for you to take home and apply throughout your week. Simply to believe in this Jesus who is eternal, who was with God in the beginning, who is God, through whom all things were created, and through whom we all receive life eternal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent this Son into the world. How glorious, how incomprehensible these things are to think of eternity, to think of creating out of nothing, to think of darkness not being over, able to overcome light. These things are just beyond our grasp on our own. But I pray that by the Spirit you will help us to lay hold of these great truths. And we thank you for overcoming the darkness of our own life, bringing us into the light, that the light of the knowledge of God has shone in our hearts. And we pray that you would make us people who would go and proclaim this good news to the world around us. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.